Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now this is a rather unique situation. After doing 60 episodes of this podcast I decided to go back to episode 1 and originally I just planned on inserting the opening theme music into the podcast. However I found out that i don't actually know where the original WAV file for episode one is located and as a result I decided to just redo the podcast uh, at least this episode of it as a better representation because when I had started this podcast back in Memorial Day of 2023 I didn't really have a set outline or way that I was going to present these podcasts so I kind of worked my way through the first podcast, but being that this is such an important case to me, I wanted to make sure that I have the best representation of the podcast as the first episode that people listen to. So while episodes probably two through 10 are still gonna be a little rough and I do not plan on going back and redoing all of those, uh, episode one is more like what you're gonna find in the more recent episodes of this podcast. So if you like what you hear, keep on listening um, get through those those rough first single digit episodes and eventually most of my episodes will turn out to be more like the one you're going to hear today uh, let's get down to the business here if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to please like and follow the true blue crime productions facebook page more information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com and if you'd like to email me directly my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this remade episode one of True Blue Crime. Stearns County, Minnesota was on the edge of the frontier of America in the mid-1800s. It was the site of regular clashes between mainly first-generation European settlers and Native American tribes in the region. Catholic missionaries from Germany were attempting to Christianize the indigenous population and had called for more German Catholics to settle in the region. A migration of German, Slovenian, and Polish Catholic immigrants settled into 20 different hamlet-like villages in the area. Many of them came from Catholic areas of their home countries where the church owned the land and they worked the land for the church, but had no self-owned property. They had left this condition in Europe with the hope of obtaining land of their own that they could pass down through generations. So when several Benedictine priests arrived in 1856 to serve in the growing parishes of the region, they were met with outrage by the settlers who feared they would once again become tenant farmers under the church. The church responded by issuing an interdict and denying religious rights and services until the outrage was quashed. The settlers came to trust the church as it assisted them in building their own homes and offering shelter during attacks from Native Americans, and harmony was restored. The settlers came to rely on the church even more when shortly after the interdict was lifted, a locust infestation wiped out almost the entire crops of the summer of 1856. The settlers survived that winter sharing what little they had and help from the church. Those hamlets became many of the small towns that make up the modern-day Stearns County, Minnesota, with several 1800s churches and a monastery still standing from those early days. But in 1989, a crime would occur outside the small town of St. Joseph, Minnesota that shocked the area, the state, and the entire nation, and a small boy would go missing for almost 30 years. An evil man was preying upon young boys in the area for several years, and this area with such a rich history of religion would find themselves in some very dark times. For this first episode of True Blue Crime, we will shed some light on the 1989 kidnapping of Jacob Wetterling. Now before I get into the main story, I want to tell everyone that this is a story that has been on my mind since 1989. When this crime happened, I was just eight, almost nine years old, and I'd growing up in Minnesota and I had just moved here from Australia a few years prior. It was a time of innocence when I could ride my bike into town and stay all day in the woods with my buddies, and as long as I made it home for dinner, all was well in the world. But when the news of this crime hit the local media, 
Suddenly, that innocence was shattered, and in one terrible act, which occurred just an hour from where I lived, this would change my outlook on the world and fill my brain with questions for years to come. The year was 1989, and another young boy named Jacob Wedling was 11 years old. He lived in St. Joseph, Minnesota, in Stearns County, with his mother and father and three siblings. Now, St. Joseph, Minnesota is a small town, roughly 45 minutes to an hour northwest of the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And on the evening of Sunday, October 22nd, his parents were 20 miles away at a gathering at a friend's house. The oldest Wetterling child, 13-year-old Amy, was at a friend's house, and Jacob, his 10-year-old brother Trevor, his neighbor friend Aaron, who was also 11, and his Jacob's youngest sibling Carmen, who was 8, were at the Wetterling house. The following day, October 23rd, was a Monday off from school, and the weather had been unseasonably warm for late October in Minnesota. Normal high temperatures would have been around 40 degrees, but the barometer had topped off around 75 degrees that day. The warm weather and lack of school the following day gave the boys an idea. They wanted to bike to the local gas station in town to rent a movie. Remember, this is 1989, there's no Netflix or Hulu, and in order to watch a movie, you had to own it on VHS or rent it. They called their parents to ask for permission to bike to town. Patty, their mother, said no, but Jerry, after initially saying no because it was dark, gave in to the boys' requests. They had promised to wear a reflective vest and bring a flashlight so they were easy to see. The final condition for them to make the trip was they had to find someone to watch Carmen as she was only eight and couldn't be left home alone. Jacob called a 14-year-old neighbor, Rochelle Jerzak, and she agreed to watch Carmen while the boys biked to rent the movie. With the plan in place, the boys headed out for the 15-minute bike ride to the gas station. The Wedelings lived on a cul-de-sac at the end of a county road. Between their house and town was a couple miles of country road that was dotted with farms and driveways that accessed the farmhouses and outbuildings. At one point on the bike ride they heard what they thought was some rustling from a cornfield near the end of one of those very long gravel driveways. After arriving at the Tom Thumb gas station they agreed on renting the naked gun and began their trip back to the house. As they approached the same drive, long driveway where they had heard the rustling sound before, a man appeared suddenly in the roadway. The man was dressed in all black and had his face covered. He announced that he had a gun and told the boys to get off their bikes, go into the ditch, and lay down. The suspect then approached each boy and asked them their age. Trevor told the man he was 10, and the man told him to run into the nearby woods as fast as he could or he would shoot him. The suspect then focused on Aaron and asked him his age. Aaron said 11, the man molested him with his hand before he told Aaron to also run off or he'd shoot him. Suddenly it was just Jacob and the man, and when Aaron got the courage to look back, the man and Jacob were gone. It would be the last time anyone other than the suspect would see Jacob alive. The remaining boys ran back to their bikes and biked as fast as they could home. This likely would have taken roughly 10 or so minutes which is a long time in a crime like this. They burst into the Wetterling house and told Rochelle that someone had taken Jacob, a man with a gun. Rochelle called her father to come over and the boys explained what had happened and Rochelle's father called 911 to report the incident. The boys would have been frantic and information was difficult, but it wouldn't take long to figure out that an 11 year old boy had been abducted by a stranger and the race was on to find them both. Roughly 15 minutes after Jacob's abduction, police were aware a major crime had occurred and every second was important. A new deputy with only a couple months on the road was closest to the Wedling home. He pulled into the area around 20 minutes after the abduction. The deputy tried to get the boys to go with him to show him where the abduction occurred, but they were so traumatized that they didn't want to go with a stranger back into the dark, not even a uniformed deputy. Rochelle's father agreed to go with, and this settled the boys down, and they were able to direct the deputy to the site of the abduction. Meanwhile, Patty and Jerry had been called and told what had happened, and they raced home from the gathering that they had been attending. Jerry didn't want to speed, and Patty told him to go as fast as he could, and if the cops stopped them, then the cops could provide an escort to get them home even faster. The stress of the situation was overwhelming for both of them, 
and they had an argument about letting the boys go to the store that ended right before they arrived at their house. There they found the boys had been brought back and were in a state of terror. Trevor was trying to talk way too fast and explain things he didn't quite understand, and meanwhile Aaron was sitting in the corner, not saying a word, looking like he'd seen a ghost. More deputies had arrived, and they sat the boys down to make sure what they say had happened was the truth and not some sort of prank. They tried to ask questions about an alternate story that was more believable than a stranger abduction. Questions like, were you playing with a gun and Jacob got hurt? Or did Jacob want to run away and he told you to tell us the story? It soon became apparent that the boys were telling the truth and the deputies were facing one of the rarest, scariest, and most difficult crimes to solve, a stranger abduction of a child. So I'll take a break here and do an aside. My episodes aren't always all narrative. Uh, in fact, I didn't do it in the introduction like I think I did the first time around, but uh, if you haven't checked out the website or the Facebook, don't know anything about me. Um, I am a 17-year retired veteran of law enforcement with 14 years of crime scene experience to go along with these 17 years as a patrol officer in a major suburb in, in the metro area of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And I'm also a six-year veteran of the U.S. Army, uh, having served in the infantry from 1999 through 2005. So I wanted to do this podcast because I, I personally like to listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. And the only thing, even some of my most fa- favorite podcasts out there, the hosts usually don't have a law enforcement background. They might have a journalism background or some form of true crime background. But I wanted to offer a unique perspective, uh, having done the job of law enforcement for 17 years with a a specialization in crime scene investigation during 14 of those, I felt that I'd have a unique perspective into some of these investigations and be able to tie in some criminal investigations or crime scene investigations into my experience. maybe be able to explain why police did things in some instances or question why police did things with with the background to do so Uh, so that's what i try to do is i i write narratives explaining the story based on the source material that i find and then i at times during the story i'll stop and break down different aspects of it in a way that hopefully better explains to the listeners how I feel the situation either was investigated well, investigated poorly, how investigators arrived at certain conclusions, and that's how basically all these episodes are going to go. And currently, even though I'm redoing this episode one, I think I'm at episode 60 right now uh, that I've done. So uh, as I said, I I now have enough experience with, with making and writing episodes, researching all that kind of stuff to feel more confident uh, in my approach. Now we'll get back to the story here. The Stearns County Sheriff's Department was not used to major crimes. The city of St. Cloud serves as the county seat for the department and in 1989 the city accounted for almost 40 percent of the entire county's population. The rest of Stearns County, an area the size of a large urban city, had only around 70,000 people in all of its cities and towns combined. This low population density and rural religious population should have made it far from a hotbed for major crimes, but that wasn't exactly the case. If you go back to 1974, there was a double abduction and murder of two schoolgirls in a case that involved a lot of inter-office politics and was later seen as a textbook way to not conduct a murder investigation. Then in 1976, there was an unsolved bombing of a post office that killed one person. And finally, there's the quadruple homicide at a farmhouse in 1978. Now, investigators in this case swore they wouldn't mess this up like they had the double murder of the schoolgirls, but after identifying a suspect and finding items from the crime scene in his car, they failed to build a case against him. The one survivor of the crime was never shown the items from the house, including a distinct Batmobile toy car kept by the suspect as a souvenir. And with the failure of the investigators to follow up on this key item of evidence, the suspect went free and went on to commit several rapes and two more murders before him being caught by the Minneapolis police. 
It wasn't until the mid-90s that a cold case unit sought out the surviving boy from that terrible crime, and his first question to investigators was whether or not somebody had found his toy Batmobile, the same one investigators from Stearns County had just four days after the murder. The suspect would eventually be convicted for the murders, but it took almost two decades and dozen more victims before the bad investigation from 1978 would be fixed. And 11 years after that botched investigation, the same sheriff's office was in charge of this crime. And as we're going to find out, not much has changed at this point, and this investigation would also take decades when it should have taken much less time. Going back to the night of the investigation, law enforcement quickly realized the magnitude of, this, of the crime, and searchers were sent out around the area of the abduction. The scene had not been locked down properly, and a lot of vehicle and foot traffic moved through the area. And the hope was that Jacob had been taken into a nearby woods by the attacker and left there, and he was too afraid to come out. And so when I say that the scene wasn't locked down properly, when you watch crime scene shows on television, they'll have this homicide scene, and let's just say, just like this, it's on a county road, it's a dirt road, gravel road, whatever you want to call it, out in the county, in the farm fields so you're picturing this on tv they'd have this shoulder on this county road where traffic normally isn't and they'd have this pristine car track you know tire track running through this shoulder and they'd scan it and the computer would tell them they're looking for a specific tire that's fitted to a specific type and make and model and all the registered owners for that make and model that live in the area and like so within the hour they've got the crime solved and the suspect under arrest in reality these scenes are not pristine before the crimes or after the crimes and if you don't lock down the scene you create an even bigger problem of people driving through the scene and we're going to talk about one of those vehicles that drove through the scene later on in, in this but it just makes it so much tougher for investigators because if you've got searchers walking through, then everybody who leaves a boot print or shoe print behind could be a suspect or at least has to be ruled out. So I am kind of shocked that eventually they are going to find a set of tire tracks and some shoe prints that are eventually going to link back to this crime. But just the way that it was handled from the very beginning, like I said, it just surprises me that there was any evidence found whatsoever. But when the nearby search failed, a helicopter search was requested. As the helicopter searched the area, investigators found two sets of shoe prints, one adult-sized and one kid-sized, leading away from the abduction site. A vehicle abduction theory is quickly formulated, and efforts were made to locate vehicle tracks and any evidence a car was involved. As the search activity at the end of the driveway grew, the 33-year-old son of the homeowner at the other end of the driveway noticed the commotion and came outside to see what was going on. Dan Rassier's parents were out of town on a vacation, and the bachelor had been organizing his record collection when his dog started barking around 9 p.m. At this time, he had looked out and saw a car's headlight coming down the driveway, and then it turned around and left at a high rate of speed. It was too dark to see a make or model for the car, and Dan figured it was someone who got lost and he went to bed. Soon after falling asleep, his dog started barking again, and Dan saw people with flashlights looking around a wood pile on the farm property. Worried someone might be trying to steal firewood, he went to confront the men and then realized it was a bad idea and called 911. The dispatcher advised him that a child had gone missing in the area, and the men he was seeing were most likely police officers and or searchers. With this information, Dan went outside and talked with a sheriff's deputy. Dan was advised of the situation, and he offered to look through his parents' outbuildings and the house to see if Jacob was hiding somewhere, and he did but found nothing. No one at any time asked Dan any questions that evening, and no one assisted him with his search or asked to search his house. He went back to bed and regretted that evening in the years to come. The lack of questioning of Dan Rassier was not the only failure early in this investigation. While there weren't many residences on the road between Jacob's house and the gas station, there were some. Many residents remember seeing Jacob and the boys bike by that evening, but they were never questioned by police. And sorry, we'll go back real quick to uh, the Dan Rassier situation that, that evening. 
as a police officer, again, you have no information getting to the scene of these crimes. And that includes, unless you have knowledge of whoever owns that home, unless you've had contact with Dan Rassi or his family before, you don't know anything about this guy. So you've got now the homeowner at a site where a child goes missing, coming out of the house in the middle of the night, and he's offering to search these outbuildings. There's you know some barns and sheds and and then the house itself because as a police officer you got to think even if this kid was abducted and assaulted but then released, an 11 year old kid might run from one of these buildings and hide, and he's afraid to come out because as you heard from the other children, the guys had a gun. So let's say he's either able to get away from the attacker and he's hiding or the attackers let him go and he's hiding. You think you would want to look through that home, all of these outbuildings. You'd ask this guy a dozen questions about where was he that evening? Did he see anything? Did he hear anything? The guy could have mentioned something about this car that was speeding down the driveway. But because they don't ask him anything and because they don't search any property that evening, then suddenly, you know, it's going to be years down the road. Suspicion's going to grow about this guy. And even though he was fully cooperative that night, investigators can start to say, well, but maybe he had something to hide. Well, you wouldn't have to say that and you wouldn't have to question it if you had done your job that evening. And it's so much harder to go back years later with a search warrant or even the next day with a search warrant if somebody's giving you consent to search their home and it's the site of a crime like a child abduction you know you take that opportunity every time you can and if the guy withdraws consent at some point that's going to look suspicious but if everything that i've read dan rassier is more than cooperative that evening and Ultimately, you know, he ends up paying the price because the police weren't doing their job that evening. Now, not just it wasn't just Dan Rasser, as I mentioned, many residents uh, recalled not being questioned by police. And one of these people, they even lost a family dog the day after the abduction because it was hit by a car during the massive influx of traffic to the area. And the man wanted to bury the dog in his yard, but was worried it would look bad. So he had a neighbor serve as a witness to the burial in case anyone asked about the fresh dug dirt in his yard. And his anxiety gave way to disappointment as the years passed and he realized no one ever asked him about the grave, but he felt someone in law enforcement should have. And he's 100% right on this. I mean, if you're looking through an area and you're supposedly searching it with a fine tooth comb, and along this path, and that's the one thing you're going to do is retrace this entire path that these boys took from the home to the gas station and then back to the abduction site. If you come across a house with a freshly dug grave, that should be crime scene 101 that you're at least going to ask the guy, hey, what's with this freshly dug child slash dog sized grave in your yard? And the fact that they didn't, that just leads me to believe that a lot of parts of this investigation were not done properly. But more important, one of the boys who lived along the road had a story to tell the police, but no one ever asked him. And this was actually the son of the man who had lost the dog. He was a 14-year-old boy named Adam. When Adam was around nine years old, he was playing kickball in his yard when someone kicked the ball across the road and into the ditch. Adam stated he ran to retrieve the ball and while he was in the ditch, a man grabbed him in a bear hug. The man was described as wearing glasses and having a dark, raspy voice. Adam escaped after his sister called for him, and the man told Adam he was lucky his sister called for him. Then, just a month before Jacob was kidnapped, Adam was in the same area walking home from the same Tom Thumb that Jacob and his brother and friend had been at when Adam and his friend were chased by a man in a blue car. The man followed them home and sat in their driveway before backing out and leaving the area. No one ever talked to Adam, so after he heard about Jacob's abduction, he asked his father to drive him to the Incident Command Center so he could tell his stories. He told investigators about the incidents, but he never heard anything back from them. The lack of follow-up bothered him so much that he drove to the Stearns County Sheriff's Office in 2004. He was almost 30 years old this time, an adult, and he wanted to tell them the story again, and he offered to take a deputy to the location where these crimes against him occurred. 
but he left the office furious that the department didn't care about his story. Then in 2015, Adam asked to see his statements from 1989. After reading the statements, he was again furious as he read how the 14-year-old version of himself told investigators he knew what type of car the suspect drove, which was a blue smaller car like a Pontiac 6000, and he had looked at the guy's face and could pick him out of a lineup, but nothing was ever done with this information. If you go back to our timeline, on the morning of October 23, 1989, the people of Minnesota learned about the crime and it became a shocking moment for many, myself included. The community around St. Joseph rallied to support the Wetterlings and resources from all over Minnesota and the country converged on the small town. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, which is a statewide investigative agency, the Minnesota State Patrol, which is a statewide patrol division, and the Minnesota Army National Guard and the FBI arrived to help search for Jacob and the unknown suspect. In the days and weeks that followed, a pre-social media blitz took the story and spread it far and wide. Members of the Minnesota Twins spoke about Jacob and showed up in the small town where a human chain three miles long stretched through Main Street, a sign of support for the family and friends of Jacob. Regular civilians searched everywhere and organized searchers used horseback and ATV to check farm fields and wooded areas. Thousands of searchers walked ditches, back roads, and cornfields looking for any clues to the whereabouts of the missing boy. The search for Jacob would go down as one of the biggest missing child searches in American history. The Wedlings embraced the media firestorm around Jacob's abduction, hoping any avenue of exposure would increase the chance Jacob would be found and found alive. Even Geraldo Rivera, the face of massive breaking news in the 80s, traveled to the small town to do a segment on the Wetterlings and the search for Jacob. Jacob became one of the poster children for child safety and a time when stranger danger is becoming a front page issue. The issue of stranger danger had been kicked off by John Walsh, who lost his son Adam to a stranger abduction eight years earlier in 1981. Walsh went on to host America's Most Wanted as an attempt to bring attention to the dangerous criminals loose in American society and to try and apprehend them before they predated on more people. The downside to the media blitz was an overreactive public. When things like a tip about a white van being involved leaked to the public, suddenly every white van, which would have been thousands in Minnesota alone, became a call and a lead that needed to be looked into. Then came the calls from the mentally ill. Men, women, and even juveniles would call Patty and Jerry at all hours of the day and night to tell them false stories so the caller could be amused or entertained by their own depravity. But the Wetterlings felt they had to pick up the phone because they were afraid of missing a call from Jacob that might bring him home. The number of leads between 1989 and 2016 was estimated to be somewhere near 70,000 and none of the leads that have been investigated led to any positive movement for the investigation. As I mentioned before, the lack of locking down the crime scene resulted in situations where evidence was left behind by people who weren't the suspect. In one case, that was a specific set of car tracks that investigators looked for for years. And then in 2003, a man came forward to admit that he was the owner of the car that left these car tracks, but that he had no involvement at all in Jacob's abduction, which was proved to be a true statement. As a result, investigators abandoned the car abduction theory and turned back to a theory that the person may have lived a lot closer to the scene of the crime, and they found someone who didn't need a car to commit the crime, who was Dan Rassier. After 2003, Dan Rassier's life became a living hell as he was named a person of interest and his family farm was searched on numerous occasions. The fact he was an unmarried man with no kids living with his parents at the time of the abduction made him suspicious to many people and they felt it was too convenient for him to be home alone in the direct area the night Jacob went missing. As the court of public opinion turned on him, Dan desperately wished that he had somehow forced deputies to search his home and property that evening. He denied any involvement in the abduction, but even after search after search revealed nothing, he was always treated as a suspect. 
But all this time, the real suspect was close by and was known to police, but the connection was never made between this man, his other crimes, and Jacob. It took the bravery and resolve of one victim to finally break this case and solve the mysterious tragedy surrounding Jacob's crime. In 2013, a man named Jared Shearl started a path towards healing from an earlier chapter in his life. In 1989, when he was about 13 years old, he was abducted by a man in Cold Spring, Minnesota, a town in Stearns County about 10 miles from Jacob's hometown. It was January of 1989, and Jared had been playing hockey at a nearby park where the city froze water in the winter to make an outdoor rink. Walking home in the dark, a man stopped next to him to ask for directions. The man told Jared he had a gun and wasn't afraid to shoot him and told him to get in his car. The suspect sexually assaulted Jared in the car before letting him go. The man did not wear a mask and told Jared before letting him go that if he told anyone who had attacked him, he'd come back and kill him. Jared told his parents about the attack, the police were contacted, and a composite sketch was done of the suspect. Terrified by the encounter, Jared's family moved to Painesville, roughly 20 miles away, for a fresh start on some land they had inherited from the family. It would be in 2013, after returning to Painesville from a vacation, that he first heard about the Painesville Seven, a group of young boys attacked in the town by a child molester in the years before Jared moved there. Jared wondered if all the cases could be connected, the Painesville Seven, his attack, and Jacob's case. After all, this was a small rural area. Stranger sexual assaults on children are extremely rare, and there had been eight attacks and seven victims in Painesville, then Jared's attack, and nine months later Jacob is taken. The crime seemed too similar and in too small of an area not to be related. And this is where I'll take a, a step aside and so I was a police officer for 17 years, worked in a city of about 70,000 people. So the city I worked for was the same as the rest of the population of Stearns County in 1989. And in that entire 17-year span, and I investigated as a crime scene technician, I investigated several of our more high-profile crimes, I can count on one hand the number of sexual assault cases that I worked that were uh, proven to be a, a sexual assault of some sort and none of them were stranger sexual assaults they were all uh, sexual assaults that occurred as a result of taking advantage of an intoxicated person or something along those lines the the idea that in an area that has 70,000 people and then in the course of a few years you have 10 different stranger attacks on children with a sexual component to it, it definitely goes well against the norm for, for crime in America, thankfully. And it just seems like this, this relationship should have been identified earlier. And it kind of was, and we'll talk about it in a bit, but... I said, just based on my own experience, if I took three reports of stranger sexual assaults on kids in a town of 70,000 people, I, I would think we had a problem, let alone 10 in as in a much more rural area. So a, a year before Jacob had made this crusade, in 2012, a DNA profile had been obtained from Jared's sweatshirt and snowsuit from the day of the attack. And... I don't know if this is why, but Jared started his own investigation and he started contacting old friends, classmates, the media, and investigators to try and build momentum in the case. He strongly believed the man who attacked him was responsible for these crimes and wanted justice. What he learned was a name from the investigation into his own attack, a man named Danny Heinrich. Investigators were well aware of Danny at the time of Jacob's abduction, but a series of missteps during the investigation kept him out of handcuffs for far too long. Now, Danny Heinrich was born in 1963 in Painesville, Minnesota. He dropped out of high school in 10th grade and started hanging out with an older guy who was in his mid-30s at the time named Dwayne Hart. Hart would later be identified as a suspect in several sexual assaults and molestations of young boys in the mid-70s in that area. Hart was known to groom his victims, and it was said that he would often take Danny to an abandoned area of, of a farm 
where he would supply him with alcohol. So it's likely at this time, and I don't know for how long or at what early of an age, but Danny was likely sexually assaulted by Dwayne Hart during these hangouts. Then as a teenager, Danny was arrested for several thefts and burglaries in the Painesville area. And in 1980, at the age of 17, he's committed to the Wilmer State Hospital because of his inability to control his criminal behavior and it was what is called an unstable emotional atmosphere in his home. Now, he would leave the state hospital and enlist in the Minnesota National Guard in 1982 and is arrested for drunk driving shortly after. While serving in the Guard, he is arrested for more thefts and burglaries, and sometimes the charges are dropped because people like Danny but overall, they just can't pinpoint what his problem is. In 1986, a deputy tries to stop him on suspicion of drunk driving, and he flees the officer on foot and ends up fighting with the officer before being taken into custody. That same year, a string of sexual assaults begins on young boys in the Painesville area. All the boys describe the same stocky man around 5'7 with a raspy voice. He often jumps out of nowhere and molests them before they can run away. He is actually given the nickname Chester the Molester around town as no one can identify him specifically. He's known to wear camel clothing or dark clothing and the assaults end in 1988 and Jared is kidnapped and assaulted in January of 1989. Upon reviewing his case file, Jared found that in the days following his case, deputies used his description of the car and his attacker to hone in on Danny Heinrich as a suspect in his case. Jared described Heinrich's car as a blue sedan with a police scanner, and the suspect wore camouflage clothing. One of the deputies knew that Danny drove that color car and had a police scanner and often wore camel clothing that was issued to him by the National Guard. The deputy also knew that Heinrich hung out with Dwayne Hart, a convicted sex offender. Just three days after January of 19... the January attack of 1989, investigators met with Heinrich but ruled him out as a suspect because of a difference in Jared's description of the car. Jared's case would go cold until Jacob is taken. When Jacob was taken, some deputies recognized the similarities between some of the Painesville attacks, Jared's attack, and Jacob's abduction. Danny Heinrich was put on a short list of suspects. His car was found to have tires that could have left some of the documented tire tracks at the scene of the abduction. And this was the only tire track match in thousands of operable vehicles looked at during the investigation. And two days after Jacob was taken, one of the victims of the Painesville attack told investigators he felt the man who took Jacob was the same man that attacked him. This was due to the military-like precision described in both attacks. And this lead would sit untouched until January 5th of 1990. But as investigators look at this lead, the idea that Danny is a suspect is confirmed by the chief of police of Painesville, who also believes there's a link between the attacks in his town and Jacob's abduction. On January 10th, Danny Heinrich is interviewed by the FBI, and the agent comments that the suspect looks a lot like the composite sketch from Jared's attack. He also matches the size and physical description of the suspect in all of the cases. On January 12th, Danny Heinrich agrees to a polygraph, which returns a deceptive result in all questions related to Jared and Jacob. Danny said he failed because he was nervous. The same day, Danny's vehicle is photographed and tires match tracks from the scene of the abduction. Danny's shoes are noted to match the shoe prints of the adult shoes found with the child-sized shoes at the crime scene. So we'll take an aside here and talk about a couple things here. Uh, the polygraphy, uh, what's known as this lie detector test. Uh, one thing people understand on a pretty wide basis is that these are not admissible in a court of law, at least not unless both the defense and prosecution agree to it. And 99 times out of 100, that's not going to happen because if it shows deception, the defense isn't going to allow it in. And if it shows the person telling the truth, the prosecution isn't going to want to let it in. So they're used more as kind of a guiding tool for the investigation when they are used at all. It's not very common that they're used, I guess more by like the FBI and some of the major uh, cities might use them. But in my 17 years, I never had anybody um, that I knew take the polygraph. And I mean, in some states, like, and federal agencies, you have to take one as part of your background uh, to see if you're being deceptive about some of the answers on your background. But 
Uh, Danny's going to fail this polygraph, and the way the polygraph works from the way I understand it is they're going to ask you a bunch of baseline questions early on while you're hooked up to the machine. And the machine is reading things like blood pressure, heart rate, uh, perspiration rate, all that kind of stuff. Basically, anything that could receive a signal from your brain for nervousness or deception basically they get the baseline they ask you your questions that you're not going to lie about uh, you know where'd you grow up and different very simple questions and they get this baseline and then they ask you questions and if your baseline doesn't change when they ask you questions then you're likely telling the truth so if they can ask you the town that you grew up in or the high school that you went to and you answer with the same physiological reaction to that as you do were you involved in the kidnapping of Jacob Wedling and the machine says you your response is the same then they're gonna call that a truthful response but if you get a spike in blood pressure or heart rate or a respiratory rate or perspiration or whatever it might be and when they ask you this question you answer no they're gonna assume that you're being deceptive because your body is saying one thing even though your words are saying something else and so he's gonna they're going to establish a baseline with him and he's going to be deceptive on whether he's involved in jared or jacob's abduction which again not admissible in court but a pretty strong guide for uh, the investigation then the, the polygrapher is going to notice the bottom of of danny's shoes and he's going to remember seeing a photograph from the crime scene of those shoe prints and that's going to be those shoe prints with the adult uh, print next to the child print. Now, these shoe prints would eventually be sent to the FBI lab and the shoes themselves, I guess, the pictures of the shoe prints. And the lab rules that they can't 100% match these. And matching shoe prints is way more difficult than it sounds. Uh, again, we're not talking pristine CSI conditions here. Uh, we might have a partial shoe print. We may have a shoe print that somebody else walked over at some point. Uh, we may have a shoe print that was disturbed when a car passed by too close to it. So you're likely not going to get a one-for-one one where you can look at the shoe, look at the print. It does happen, but not very often. But what's important is that the FBI didn't rule out. They didn't say that there's no way that this shoe print did not come from this shoe. So we now have the, the polygraphy test, we have the shoe print, and you have this vehicle tire tires matching his vehicle are found at the crime scene and they looked at like i said i think it was like a thousand vehicles and only one other vehicle had these tires that they looked at uh, as a potential suspect vehicle and that vehicle was broken down at the time it was inoperable so of the 999 other vehicles they looked at only one had these tires on them which was danny heinrich's car so while it's not, again, a smoking gun, none of these are, it's all leading to a pretty good idea that Danny Heinrich was at Jacob's abduction scene at some point. Now, Danny is released from questioning. Uh, again, they don't have any direct evidence to tie him. They have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but they don't have a case yet. So they put him under surveillance. He is noted to drive random patterns and drive without his lights on at times while in the dark. And his driving behavior is consistent with pattern pattern of driving described by Jared during his kidnapping and assault. It, it was determined that the suspect didn't want Jared to know where the car was going or be able to follow a direct path for reasons of evidence or potential eyewitnesses that might have seen the car. So he kind of drove this really erratic pattern, according to Jared. And this is what, when he's put under surveillance, this is what... Uh, the surveillance cars are witnessing is that Danny often drives this way where he'll drive for a few miles with his headlights off in the dark and then turn him back on and then he'll make random turns at, at locations and come back out on the road that he was on and it's just not your typical driving behavior because if you're not a teenage kid out driving for the first time and just enjoying the drive for most people driving is just a means to get from one point to the other and you do it as quickly and you know efficiently as possible and that's not what they're seeing out of Danny 
Now on January 15th, a vehicle owned by Heinrich at the time of Jared's assault is located and is found to match Jared's description. He's asked to sit in the car and Jared said it's an 8 or 9 out of 10 that he was in the same car that he was attacked in. And I was kind of confused upon reading this. I don't, this car had been repossessed. So I don't know if after Jared's attack, if this, if whatever blue car Heinrich was in at that time matched, you know, was the right color, but not the right car. So that's why they, there's parts of the description that didn't match up, or if it was a mistake in the statement, uh, when somebody recorded the statement from uh, Jared about the car, certain descriptions were written down improperly, but basically when they find this vehicle, Jared's saying, yes, this is, I'm pretty sure I'm, this is the car I was in. Uh, on January 23rd, a search warrant is conducted on Danny's home. Clothing matching the description of the attacker's clothing was taken, and a locked box was found containing several photos of young boys in their underwear or after showering. While these photos weren't deemed to be illegal, investigators should have seized the photos as evidence, but they didn't, and Heinrich burned them after investigators left. And this is, again, another one of those mini missteps along the way. You have... You're building a case against a guy, and everything is lining up with what you're expecting to find to a certain degree. And likely in somebody who you suspect is a, could potentially be a child abductor, a child molester, a child sexual assault suspect, you're likely going to find some form of child pornography in their home. And you're finding a version of it. It might not be illegal child porn, but it's definitely suspicious stuff that it, that again just works towards building your case they don't take it and then i think they went back to try to get it a few days later and he admits that he burned it because he realized it's something he shouldn't have so another missed opportunity there on january 26th danny is put into a physical lineup jared can't pick him out because he would later claim it was dark and he didn't get that good of a look at his face and no voice lineup was done with Jared or the survivors of Jacob's attack. And I can't totally fault that because this is something you see, I guess, more in the movies with the whole repeat after me and the person hears something that they say. But I don't know that it's, again, wouldn't be something that you could do in this case because Trevor and Aaron both heard the guy talk and so did Jared. And... I don't know that it's going to hurt your case if you have all your people in your lineup talk and if they say hey so-and-so really sounds like him again it's just it's building bits and bits of this case up until you have a solid case and any missed opportunity is is only hurting your case on february 9th danny is arrested while drinking at a bar and brought to fbi interviewers in what is later called the most serious mistake Danny is interviewed by a rookie FBI agent while much more experienced personnel are kept from asking questions. This rookie FBI agent had never interviewed a homicide suspect before. And the FBI had learned that a match was made between a fiber in Danny's car and a fiber on Jared Snow's suit, but this information was not relayed to other investigators at the time. Danny was arrested and booked for first degree criminal sexual conduct and kidnapping, but then released and no charges are filed against Heinrich after this booking. So basically, after Jacob is kidnapped, they build this massive case against Danny Heinrich. They've got his car, they've got clothing that matches, they've got the suspicious photos, they've got um, this fiber from his car on Jared's snowsuit. The only way that fiber gets on Jared's snowsuit is if Jared was in his car at some point. So you've got this case that's building and building and building against Heinrich. And then what happens in this situation is he's booked, but he's released because they don't believe they have enough to charge him. And the attorneys prosecuting this eventually say it's still too circumstantial of a case. We don't have any direct evidence. And so instead of taking him to trial and potentially losing, they just decide not to charge him whatsoever. Now we'll fast forward to March of 1991, that Dwayne Hart, who was the convicted sex offender that was friends with Heinrich, is interviewed while he's incarcerated. He tells investigators that Danny Heinrich liked to ambush young boys and keep trophies of his attacks. 
He also states he saw Danny in possession of items described by the victim of his crimes. And finally, Hart told investigators that Danny asked him how to get rid of a body. Investigators would go back to Hart in October of 1991. It was roughly one year after the abduction. And when Hart is interviewed this time, he tells investigators that he believes the abductor would have worked in construction in the area, which Danny did, and that the suspect had a blue car and used a police scanner. Unfortunately, it appears that investigators did not really look at Danny Heinrich after his arrests in 1990. However, during that time, Dan Rassier is asked several times to admit to abducting Jacob, and his property was searched in 2010 and items were seized that were now known to have no connection to the crime. Even the search warrant itself was said to have been signed in less than strong probable cause. Basically, when you want to get a search warrant, you have to outline for the judge all the evidence you have that indicates that a search of this property is likely going to produce evidence of a crime. And if you can't do that, I had judges that just would refuse to sign search warrants unless you had a stronger case. Now, in this case, I recall doing the research, something like Dan Rassier told somebody that he liked to run to clear his head, and he was a marathon runner, and that's something that runners do. They That's part of their you know, routine in life is exercising by running long distances, and it helps them clear their head. Well, that was supposedly put into the search warrant as grounds for the search warrant because people felt like he was admitting to committing a crime and needing to clear his guilty conscience by running so again it the way it was described i didn't actually see the actual search warrant but it was described as a pretty weak application for a search warrant that got granted and we're going to know now eventually dan rasser has nothing to do with this so a lot of people are upset after the fact that police focused in on on Dan Rassier after having built a really strong case against Danny Heinrich and then doing nothing with it. Now, thankfully, Jared Sherrill stayed on top of investigators and urged them to look for connections between his case and the Painesville cases in an effort to solve Jacob's case. In March of 2015, a blue hat from a scene of one of the Painesville attacks yielded DNA from three individuals. In May of 2015, hairs voluntarily given up by Danny in 1990 are found to have usable DNA and a profile for Danny is created from the hairs. Three months later, in July, on July 18th of 2015, DNA is found on the sweatshirt worn by Jared when he was abducted in January of 1989 and is found to 100% match Danny's DNA. The DNA from the hat is matched to DNA, Danny's DNA by a margin of 80.5%. And when we mentioned DNA being a different percentage based, the reason why you have a 100% match on the DNA on the sweatshirt is because that's likely going to be, I'm assuming in this case, semen. And you're going to get one profile from that DNA match. So you're going to be able to take all of the markers from that one profile and match them to all the markers from Dan, Danny's DNA. The hat was said to be three different people worth of DNA in that hat. So you're gonna be able to take certain markers from Danny's DNA and compare it and find those markers within those profiles on the hat, but you're not gonna be able to say that's 100% because you're gonna have other markers in there that are gonna throw things off, but you're actually not, you're not excluding him either. You're saying he's a match to 80% and you're saying there's no mismatch there. Now search warrant is conducted on Danny's home on July 28th of 2015. And while some clothing matching the clothing worn by the attacker is seized, no direct evidence of his involvement in any of the crimes is found. However, 19 three ring binders full of child pornography are found, and he would admit to downloading the photos off the internet. And there's gonna be a lot of behind the scenes work over the next 14 months. But on September 6th of 2016, Danny appears in court and having agreed to plead guilty to the child porn charges and confessed to the abduction, sexual assault, and killing of Jacob in 1989 if he is immune from prosecution for the crimes against Jacob. Now, this is going to be a deal that has to go to the Wetterlings because I'm sure law enforcement is sitting there saying, 
we still don't have the direct evidence link between Danny and Jacob. We, the statute of limitations that expired on the charges for Jared's attack um, and the attacks in Painesville. So for the, the murder charge against Jacob, they just they didn't have enough to say 100% that Danny is the one that took, assaulted, and killed Jacob. Because at this point, they don't have a body. They don't have any evidence from Jacob's scene at all to, indi- to, to directly link Heinrich. So the Wetterlings had to reluctantly agree to the deal because they're going to want to know what happened to their son. And they're going to know that Danny is set to be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for the child porn charges. And so he's going to be at least 70 when he gets released. So it's kind of one of those weighted things where it's it's not like he wasn't going to go away to prison at all. But he wasn't going to go to pr- None of his charges are ever going to come from what he did to Jacob. But the only way for you to recover Jacob's body and to find out what happened to your son that evening is to kind of do this deal with the devil at this point. And, and the Wetterlings are, and I don't blame them, they're going to agree to it. And as part of the deal, Danny had to take investigators to Jacob's body so he could be returned to his family and properly buried. After admitting in court on the evening of October 22, 1989, that he abducted Jacob at gunpoint, Danny stated he drove Jacob to a secluded location and sexually assaulted him. After sexually assaulting Jacob, he heard police sirens in the distance, and these were likely from deputies responding to the site of the abduction, and he panicked and he shot Jacob and buried him in a shallow grave. Now, Danny would admit to returning to the site sometime later and panicking when part of Jacob's red jacket was visible above the dirt, so he moved the body to a deeper grave. And I don't know if it was this original location or if it was the second location where Jacob's body actually was, but it would later be determined this was the farm that Danny and and Dwayne Hart used to drink at. So, again, I I think there's definitely parts in this investigation where more information could have been gained early on that would have led to maybe this crime being solved a lot earlier. But the end result is that after 27 years, Jacob was back with his family and the saga was over. One can't help but look back on the investigation as we sit here in 2023 and wonder how things could have been different if the investigation had been handled properly from day one. And and that's kind of the end of the narration of this this story. I think the frustration from the investigation actually comes more from it's kind of like in boxing the the term you got the guy on the ropes and that's the boxer who's dominating the match to a certain degree and is just about to have his opponent beat and then he either makes a mistake or she makes a mistake or just lets up enough for the other person to recover and i really feel like that's what happened with this investigation danny heinrich got away with all of those assaults in Painesville in the late 80s he must have realized you know investigators starting to close in words starting to spread around the town so he jumps over to the town of Cold Spring not knowing that of course Jared's going to move to Painesville after this attack but he he moves to Cold Spring makes this new attack in, in Cold Spring and basically the the investigators kind of have him dead to rights. Jared is saying that this is the guy. And, and later on in the FBI ops, the agents is even saying, hey, this guy looks just like the composite sketch that we have from Jared during this assault. So not only do you have a chance to probably get him after Jared's assault, after the Jacob Wetterling abduction, you've got this grade a prime suspect i mean you can't draw up a better suspect short of some type of physical evidence and you know if they had jacob's body back then maybe it would have been a little bit different too but you've got this suspect you've got him on the ropes you arrest him while he's drinking which is kind of a number one no-no with law enforcement you don't take statements from people who are intoxicated they don't hold up in court anyway And then instead of letting some veteran FBI guys or I think there was some really veteran Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, the Minnesota agency, 
guys there to investigate dozens if not hundreds of homicides in their career instead of letting them go after this guy and and trying to gain a confession from him or at least get him to slip up enough where you you can build a case or find some evidence against him you let this rookie fbi guy just out of academy interview him and and even you know i didn't have any fbi train interview training experience i had a little bit of interview training experience but you give me a fiber from his vehicle found on the clothing of a victim and i'm going to hammer that from every angle i can because there is no way that that fiber gets onto jared's clothing without jared being in your car so you either have to get him to admit that he gave a ride to jared at some point but you have to put jared in his car and once you do that your case becomes that much more solid now you can tell a jury that he admits to having Jared in his car. Jared, the victim, is saying that he was sexually assaulted in this vehicle by a guy that looks like Heinrich, that sounds like Heinrich. This is our guy. And in the case of then Jacob's case, you draw the those same parallels, those same connections. At least maybe if you get him into prison for Jared's attack, while he's in prison, he slips up and tells somebody about uh, what he did with Jacob, you know, just the entire investigation changes. If instead of in February of 1990, police completely back off of Heinrich, and I said even in '91 they're getting information from Heinrich's buddy saying basically, "Hey, Heinrich's your guy. He's he's the guy that you should be arresting for this crime." He's not telling him directly his name. He's just saying, hey, the suspect's going to have a blue car. He's going to have worked in construction in the area. I'm telling you that Heinrich attacks, ambush attacks kids and keeps trophies of his of his crimes. These are all things coming from the good friend of your main suspect. And again, nothing is being done with it. So, you know, we're, we want to try to end on a positive note here. So as we're getting kind of a little long in the, the podcast, I'll, I'll stop giving my two cents about the investigation will go into what I try to do is I try to identify a hero of some of my stories. Now, not every story has a hero because some of the stories are just, unfortunately it's a victim and a suspect and, and there's no heroes, but this Jared Cheryl guy, I have to give him a ton of credit for the courage he had to come forward at, at the age that he was when he, when this happened to him to even report it in the first place. There's going to be a lot of kids that this happens to that it's either too embarrassing, uh, you're worried about people making fun of you, or people thinking you're lying, or rumors spreading around the school that something that didn't happen happened, you know, something along those lines. So for him to come forward with the courage to tell his parents and to go through the investigation, that's, you know, that's enough right there. But then after then for him to come out after so many years and work so hard to bring this guy to justice you know and he had mentioned on a couple occasions that he never really was able to sleep well again because he always knew that his attacker could still be out there now he could be dead but the attacker as far as he knew was not brought to justice so he was always worried that this guy could come back in his life and try to kill him. Because that's the one thing about unidentified suspects is they know who their victim is. It's, it's not fair, but they know who their victim is. They often know their names, where they live, anything about them. They can find them anytime they want to. Whereas in the reverse, the victims, it, they often don't know, like in cases like this, who their, their attacker is. So they have to live in fear that this attacker could show up at any time in the rest of their life and and re-attack them or do something to them or something along those lines. So you know, he made it his commitment to make sure that he would be able to sleep at night if this guy was brought to justice. And, and he pushed the issue despite how hard it would have had to be for him to relive that night and all the emotions and fear and everything that would come back every time he even thought about the incident and it was his actions and his perseverance that ultimately gave Jacob back to his family so 
uh, Hero of the Story, definitely Jared. And then a big shout out to uh, APM Reports. Um, I do keep all my source material that I get the information from in my research. It's always documented in there, but every once in a while I'll come across a website or what, however I, I find it, a, an article of some sort that provides me with a lot of good information for the, for the episode. And a, a special shout out to APM Reports for their work on this case. I was able to use a lot of their material to, to relay the, the story. So, All right, thank you guys for listening. Uh, stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. And, and again, this was a remake of Episode 1, a re-release as you might, and I, I guess a complete remake of the episode that I did because I want people that find my show to listen to this episode realize the potential for the future episodes uh i'm sure episodes roughly two through ten probably aren't as clean or organized or well delivered but just keep in mind they do get better so you know stick with it or jump ahead if you need to but uh, this is more representative of what you're going to find uh as the the podcast has has grown and progressed and all that kind of stuff so Thanks, guys, for listening. We'll talk to you later. Goodbye.